0: Following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. A week ago, a seaside cliff in Encinitas, California collapsed and it killed three people that were on the beach below. And it was shocking, but it's a scary reality of California's eroding coastline. Erosion doesn't happen overnight. Warning signs are a safeguard, but you never know, and you must be watchful. And Christian fellowship can begin to erode when we don't even realize it. And What can we do about it? We're in Romans chapter 12, which paints a beautiful picture of real Christianity. What does it mean to really follow Christ? And last week we saw this picture of sincere love in verse 9. Today we're going to focus on zealous family love, in verses 10 through 13. But we're also going to see 10 family re- responsibilities in the body of Christ that Christians have toward one another. And these are not the only responsibilities, but they are important and they are before us today. And they are safeguards against eroding fellowship. You can call them building blocks to a healthy church if you want. But God uses these ten responsibilities and more to strengthen his church. And when they're missing, when they're absent, the church is weakened. So I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. If you're able, I want to ask you to stand with me as I read God's word. It is a privilege to read the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. I'm going to read verses 10 through 13. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. Pray, Lord, by your spirit, you would have your way in our hearts today, that you would change us by your word, that you would be honored and glorified. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The big idea in this passage today is this, that Jesus generates love in his church, Jesus generates family love in his church. We know we are prone to wander, we know that we are prone to stray, and if we don't stay close to Jesus and one another, fellowship begins to erode. You can go back to Romans 12:1 and see that due to God's gospel mercies that are outlined in chapters 1 through 11, that that. It tells us Christ saves sinners, and that all who trust in Christ's finished work on the cross, all who trust Christ's sacrifice for sin, fully yield themselves to him. And then we find in chapters 12 through 16, how do you really live this Christian life? How do you really follow Jesus where the rubber meets the road in daily life? And you notice it's about yielded dependence. It's about obedience that keeps us on point. It's it's about us trusting Jesus who saved us, who is sanctifying us, who is sustaining our lives, and we trust him to lead us and guide us and protect us and provide for us in Christ. And so today, this refreshing passage of zealous family love and these 10 responsibilities, these family responsibilities are going to be wonderful and Uh, To give a handle on it, really, I I gave a summary heading to every verse. So I want to give you those, okay? Verse 10, a picture of tenderhearted care. And there'll be two responsibilities under there. So tenderhearted care, verse 10. Verse 11, enthusiastic service. There'll be three responsibilities under there. Enthusiastic service. Verse 12, unwavering hope. Unwavering hope. There'll also be three responsibilities there. And then verse 13, generous giving and some responsibilities under there. So tenderhearted care, enthusiastic service, unwavering hope, and generous giving. And these are four heart-based attitudes that have to anchor our obedience to the responsibilities that we have as we fulfill them in the family of God. Because what you'll notice as you go along is it's not about just doing something. It's about how you do it and why you do it. What's your motive? How and why we do what we are commanded and enabled to do matters supremely. So four heart-based attitudes that must anchor our obedience to God as we fulfill our responsibilities in the family of God. Start with me at verse 10, and we're going to look at this picture of tender-hearted care. Tender-hearted care. Now, the first responsibility, there's no surprise here, it is love. This verse begins, love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. Literally, full of tenderness. This is talking about like husband and wife tenderness. Um, You know, parent and child tenderness. Brother and sister tenderness. This is family Love. So love one another with brotherly affection. These are synonyms side by side coming from the same root word. So love one another comes from Philos, where we get our word Philadelphia. It means to be a friend, it means to be friendly, it means to have friendship, love. And then it's combined with family love, which is not based on you know, personal attraction or on desirability. Like when Angela and I had our four, excuse me, five kids. Sophia. (laughs) No one tell Sophia. (laughs) Uh, When Angela and I had our five kids, we're like, this what we got, we're loving these ones. Okay, we didn't go, oh, can we take this one back? Or, you know, this one's not pretty enough, or this one's not cute enough. You just take what you get in the family, and you love your family. So the first thing is love, but then you got brotherly love. So you got. Family love, now brotherly love, so it's like doubling down on it. It's the word Philadelphia, again phileo, to have this tender affection. And then for a brother, Adolphos. it's a tender affection for a brother, loving affection for God's family. So literally, the first verse is just packed with family love. In the two greatest commandments Jesus said Matthew 22 love the lord your god with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and what finish it for me love your neighbor as yourself Romans 13:8 says owe nothing to anyone except to love one another 1 Thessalonians 3:12 says may the lord cause you here is a prayer may the lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. First Thessalonians 4.9, it says, speaking of love of the brethren, Paul says, you have no need for anyone to write to you because you are taught by God to love one another. So we have a, a heavenly Father who teaches us very clearly that we're to love God's family. If you're a believer, you know that you need to do that. Not a surprise. It's like, well, no one told me that. They baited and switched me. First Peter 1:22 says that you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Therefore, because you've done that, fervently love one another from your heart. I mean, God sees our hearts, God knows our hearts, God changes hearts. 1 Peter 4:8 it says, Above all, keep fervent. In your love for one another, love covers a multitude of sins. And then it gets more serious. You get to 1 John 2, verse 9. The one who says that he is in the light, like I'm a believer and hates his brother, is in darkness. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. There is no cause for stumbling in him. 1 John three ten. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, it would make a great song. (laughs) Beloved, let us love one another. Love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. If you're a professing believer, you're actively seeking to love God and, and love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's actually an assurance that you're saved. First John 4.20, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. Strong word. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. There's an expectation here. This is not an option. We're not on a smorgasbord here. This is a willful choice. And as more. It leads to more. The second responsibility in this this verse is honor. Look at it. It says, outdo one another in showing honor. Love and honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. That no one is to seek his own honor or position, but that everyone is to be willing to give honor to others. It, It literally means to prefer one another, to give one another preference it means to go before and show the way to consider how you can show respect and consider others better and esteem them more highly it's the idea of leading the way in putting others first now does it mean you're always sitting in the back seat and you never get to drive and you never get to choose where you eat you know you never get your opinion heard no I can understand this by looking at the world of sports. I did a lot of coaching with my kids and in soccer and basketball. One of the high virtues is giving assists to your teammates so that they can score. So you give away the ball so they can score and you're happy when they do well. This is what it's like. Verse three told us already, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Philippians 2.3 says, do, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of your mind. Now you're thinking straight. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Now this isn't giving fake praise. This is not, you know, pouring on the flattery to get a boomerang compliment. This is showing genuine appreciation and admiration. This is where you are quick to show respect and acknowledge uh, the gifts and accomplishments of others. There is no hint of competition, no hint of comparison, no hint of envy, no hint of jealousy. And I know how it is. Uh, we've been all probably brought up this way, but there, there's this culture of comparison that gets forged in in the fires of athletic and academic competition. And so we, we hear phrases like this and we start to adopt them like second is the first loser or if you're not first, you're last. Jesus demolishes those ideas. He's saying like a close family that shows each other sincere love Believers are are to nurture each other, not compete with each other, not compare with one another, but to put the same energy, like put a lot of energy into doing what the culture and what your heart defaults to when you want to ensure your own dignity and your own position and your own recognition. How you want to fight for yourself because the gospel is countercultural. Romans, in in that day, they saw their neighbors as competitors. They were competing for scarce resources. So the people that heard these words and read these words, they would have understood like, yeah, we understand the water we're swimming in. You understand the water we've been all drinking our whole lives. The Romans saw their neighbors as competitors for scarce resources. In In that day, to have nothing was to be nothing. People would look down on their neighbors with elitist disdain. But here we're being told that believers that are changed by the Spirit of God, that have their minds renewed by the Word of God, must live radically differently, must renounce this vicious competition for honor and make sure that others receive honor. This is the point that's being made, that you would see everyone as intrinsically and infinitely precious and created in God's image that you would know that you bear the image of God in your soul and that you should treat other people as God's creations and that you should treat your brothers and sisters in Christ as God's new creations transformed and being sanctified soon to be glorified that means that we we ought to listen to each other. We ought to know each other's thoughts and hopes and joys and needs and fears. And, and that you would see Christ himself in residence in a Christian's life. Now, you honor others above yourself. That doesn't mean that you're always making the case why you're inferior. What it means is that you are sober minded and that you simply focus on the needs of others more than you focus on your own needs. That's really the idea. Just simply focus on the needs of others more than you focus on getting your needs met. Verse 16 is gonna tell us the same thing. Don't be conceited. We know what we are in the church. We are a collection of naturally incompatible people who are supernaturally eager to love one another. And a deep love for Jesus keeps you tenderhearted. Many people love Jesus, but you know what they'll say? I have no friends. A lot of people will say this. They'll say, I I love Jesus, but I don't like the church because the church hasn't really been that kind to me and I haven't really made many friends in the church. So I love Jesus, but I really don't like the church and I lack friends. Let me give you the cure for friendlessness. Verse 10. You do verse 10, you'll have friends. You'll have to like beat them off with a stick like I have too many friends. No, you you can't do that. You just, God will give you capacity to love more and more people. There was a poll done of over 1,200 adults, and they were asked if they had any close friends. 27% of them said they have no close friends. 25% said no acquaintances. 22%, that's one in five, no buddies at all, no chums, zero. So if you're a Christian, by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God, you do verse 10, you will have friends because you will be a friend. And then you will be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands for mending brokenness. Every day we get a reminder, you just look in the mirror, you look around, you talk to someone, you think and you know we're all broken. And we have to be honest about it. Our problems, even real or imagined, is valid. The feelings can't be ignored. And you have to have a perspective that is shaped by the Word of God. It's called a biblical worldview. This is why we need God's Word every day, as Psalm 1 says. Meditate upon it day and night. This is why we need to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. And if you're anything like me, you've already been thinking this, but what if there's someone I don't like in the church, sitting across the aisle or whatever, what if there's someone I don't like? You need to pray for them. You need to be kind to them. You know why? Because devoted brotherly love shows the world that we belong to Jesus. This is what what Jesus said. In in fact, if our love is beginning to erode, cracks are showing, fellowship gets broken down, one of the first things to go is our evangelism. If you have problems with people in the church, you're not sharing your faith in Christ. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. It's not a feeling, it's a choice you make. The sobering truth. I was thinking about this driving over to church this morning. That when I am tender hearted and a problem arises, I always think it's probably me But when I am hard-hearted and a problem arises, I always think it's someone else. You might be hard-hearted and you don't even know it. You might think you're tender-hearted, but if you always think it's someone else, you're probably hard-hearted. This this first verse really, I mean, leads off really well. (laughs) Tender-hearted care, verse 10. Move on with me to verse 11. This idea of enthusiastic service. Enthusiastic service and a third responsibility. And it's interesting. It's zeal. Zeal. What it says is do not be slothful in zeal. Everybody knows what a sloth is. You don't don't go to the sloth races, okay? It's the animal you can't get to budge, right? It's lazy. It's not moved by your demands upon it. It's a sloth. So not lagging behind in diligence, not lazy in zeal and intensity. In fact, Christian leaders are to lead the way in diligence, as verse 8 says. And there's all sorts of zealousness that we have for all sorts of things, politics and sports and social issues and our kids and other people's wrongdoing and all these things you can put on the list and you could be described as a zealous person about it. But here we are not to be slothful in zeal. But whatever is worth doing in the Lord's service is worth doing with enthusiasm. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with your heart, your whole heart. You're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. But laziness allows a root of evil to spring up. Proverbs 18.9 says, He who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. The weeds grow in the neglected field. There is no room for slothfulness. We have a responsibility to serve God with our very best. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever you find to do, do it with all your might. There is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in the grave. Literally, while you have breath, serve God's purposes. While you have breath, be zealous for your part in the body of Christ. Do your part now while you are alive. Does that make sense? Of course, and God notices. God knows what you're doing. Hebrews 6, 10, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love that you've shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And the writer of Hebrews goes on, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so that as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end that you may not be sluggish. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Zeal. Fourth responsibility, attitude. Having a good attitude, literally, it's be fervent in spirit. You know what that means? Boil. Now, it doesn't mean your anger issue, it means to generate sufficient heat. To produce energy that is necessary to get good work done. It's like a steam engine in the Christian life, and it counteracts laziness. It's a fire that makes the soul boil fervently. Its biblical fervency isn't cold to people's needs. When you think about the mercies that are explained and expounded upon in Romans chapters 1 through 11, when you think about and understand God's grace in salvation, you get fervent in spirit. Diligence there, uh, the not slothful, that's about your action, but fervent in spirit is about your attitude. Apollos was like this. In Acts chapter 18, it says he was fervent in spirit. He was teaching accurately and, and speaking accurately the things concerning Jesus, and he was fervent about it. His attitude was good. Fifth responsibility Servanthood, because it says then this trio here ends with serve the Lord. Just look at that. Look at that verse. You see that? Serve the Lord, verse 11. Just caps it right off. Serve the Lord. Well, here's what it means serve the Lord as a slave of the Lord. Serve the Lord as a slave of the Lord. You're committed to the success and well being of your master and nothing else. This is how Paul said he served. Paul said, I serve. God in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, Romans 1:9. Now in Romans 12, Paul uses three words for service, three different words to describe serving Christ. So in verse 1, he uses a word meaning service of worship, which is this reverential awe. Okay? It's Latria, um, and it means reverential awe. Second word he uses, where we get our word deacon or deaconess, diaconia. it's practical service. But here in verse 11, he uses the word for a slave, doulos. He's referring to the service of a bond slave whose only reason to exist is to do the master's will. This is how Paul considered himself. This is how he starts off three of the New Testament letters. He considers himself a bond slave of Jesus how he identifies himself in Romans 1 1 and Philippians 1 1 and Titus 1 1 a slave of Christ serving the Lord serving as a slave obedient service from the heart because he loves his master we have it on the wall we print it in the bulletin we say it's on our website we say we want to sacrificially serve Jesus as a church and it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to each individually do it, and then family units do it, and then us as a church do it. I was thinking a lot about our church this week, and how I'm very thankful for this body of believers, and now I thought there's a lot I can commend this body about, that I can say, like, thank you for what you do day in and day out, to, to worship the Lord and to serve his purposes and to serve others. And I know what happens when needs arise. People meet the needs. Whether they're organic or organized, the needs get met. And glori- you glorify God as you meet so many needs. So you're practicing what I'm preaching. You're serving the Lord with gladness, as Psalm 100 verse 2 says. And it starts in your heart first. And I think it starts in our gatherings and goes out from there as well. And so I have a lot to commend you a- about. But there's just this one little thing. See what I did right there? Right. I'm going to come back and put the sandwich together and say something good. But there's one thing i got to bring up. And I just want you to know I'm not thinking about any of you individually. I'm thinking of us Collectively. But some of you might not even know what I'm about to say because you're not here to see it. I don't know if you know this, but since January of this year, I have been starting every worship service with a scriptural call to worship. I will come up to the front, read something from the Bible, pray, and then we start. Some of you are like, "Wow, well, when do we start this? In January. <laughs> this is about getting the church on time, folks. I'm serious about it. Now, now by the way, I'm not, someone asked me for after first hour, were you like really looking at me a lot? I'm like, you're just easy to look at. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I wasn't thinking of you. I can't like, I'm not, I don't have a notepad that big, okay? When I'm going like, to keep track of everybody every time they're late to church. Uh, you know who you are. And here's the deal. Look, things happen. I get it. Extenuating circumstances. But for eight months in a row? Really? Numbers don't lie. I think you know what I'm trying to say. Commit to be on time when we come together the one time all week. We get together to worship together the King of the universe, and we're gonna sing our hearts out, and we're gonna pray, and we're gonna hear the word. We're gonna consider this together, and then go out to reach a needy world. Stop being so late. Like, I seriously want everyone just here ready. At the beginning, so you can actually hear the scriptural call to worship. And you can hear the first song. I don't know if you know this, but we sing a few songs before the preaching too. <laughs> I love you and I care about you. That's why I brought it up. See what I did there? <laughs> Tender-hearted care, enthusiastic service. Now let's move on to verse 12. Unwavering hope unwavering hope and the sixth responsibility joy look at verse 12 it says rejoice in hope that's the confident assurance that god is going to keep his promises we're born again to a living hope first peter 1 3 a sure hope people are going to ask you where's the promise of christ coming oh he's late where's your hope the hope is the eternal perspective that yields patience where we rejoice in light of our hope. Our hope is on point because it is in Christ. And so we have this joy It's not a matter of your temperament or of your circumstance, but faith in the promises of God. Because we have an omnipotent Father, a loving Heavenly Father who, who is providentially guarding our way. Romans 8, 28. We have a sovereign Savior, He is with us always. Matthew 28, 19. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have a heavenly home to look forward to. Romans 8, 24 and 25 says, In hope we have been saved. Hope that is seen is not hope. Why does one hope for what he sees? If we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Which leads us to the seventh responsibility, patience. Not just joy, but patience. Being patient, Persevering in tribulation. Patient in tribulation. That means when you're under pressure, you endure it with patience. That you know God is allowing me to go through this to drive me to Him. I have strength to persevere in trial and temptation and affliction and adversity because I have communion with Jesus constantly no matter my circumstances. There's something else though you need to know about why we go through tribulation in this world. We go through tribulation in this world because we are linked to Jesus. We have tribulation in this world because we are related to him whom the world hates. The world's hatred of Christians is just a continuation of their quarrel with Jesus. And Jesus promised believers peace in the midst of tribulation so we can joyfully endure. Romans 5, two, we exult in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. We're under pressure, longing for promised rescue. Eighth responsibility, no surprise, prayer. Look at it. Be constant in prayer. That's how verse 12 ends. Be constant in prayer. Hold fast to prayer. Persevere in prayer. Give attention to prayer. Be faithful in prayer. Pray, 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 pray. Pray without ceasing. Be devoted to it. To be devoted means to be strong towards something. To be steadfast, to be unwavering. This is how the early Christians worshipped. They were devoted to prayer. This is how the apostles worshipped. They were devoted to prayer and and the preaching of the word, the ministry of the word. We're to pray without ceasing. We're to pray and keep praying. As suffering continues, keep praying that Jesus will, will give full salvation to all of the people he has chosen and he will restore the universe. Go for the hope. Persevere in hope, in, in, in weakness, in, in a sin stained world. God's Spirit enables us to pray. Have you thought about that? The reason why you can pray? The reason why you can even pray? and give praise and endure affliction while you're praying? That you can be persistent in your prayer to the point of being an annoyance even? That you can hound God about what you're praying about? And he wants you to? There was a 2018 book entitled The Coddling of the American Mind. The subtitle was telling... How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. The book argues that recent uh, problems on college campuses originates from three great untruths that have been increasingly included as part of American childhood and education. The first untruth, that of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. The second untruth, emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. And the third untruth, us versus them. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. And you know how that gets defined in our culture. Three untruths in our culture that spread very widely and are causing untold emotional problems. Emotional reasoning? No. Always trust your feelings? No. The Bible is antithetical to that. Do not let your feelings rule. You put human reasoning in the saddle, it is very problematic. If you do that in your life as a professing Christian, you will have a hard time living the Christian life. Human reasoning is faulty. We need the word of God. We need biblically informed reason and a new heart is what we need. And as we are changed by the word of God, as as we pray unceasingly with unwavering hope, you get traction in the Christian life. Tender care, enthusiastic service, unwavering hope. Now go to verse 13 with me. I want you to see this last part. Generous giving. Generous giving. Ninth responsibility is sharing. What does it say? Contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute is from the, the word we get fellowship from, koinonia. Contribute means to share with, to share in. Koinonia is often translated fellowship or communion. The basic meaning is commonality. It's partnership. It involves mutual sharing. This was immediately evident in the early church, Acts chapter 2. The believers continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, koinonia, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, And it says that all those who believed were together and had all things in common, koinonia. Peter spoke of sharing in the sufferings of Christ, koinonia. Uh, This is the giving side of sharing. This is contributing uh, to the needs of the saints. This is sharing in their need by giving for their need. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 says, instruct those who are rich in this present world, and pretty much all of us are rich compared to the rest of the world, to be generous and ready to share, koinonia, who are stewards of what God has given us. John commended Gaius for his generosity in 3 John. He said, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. They bear witness to your love before the church. So Christians who you don't know that you serve and he says, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. They went out for the sake of the name. We ought to support them and be fellow workers with the truth. But you know what happens in a lot of our minds? We, we start thinking and leaning so much on, on government assistance of, well, uh, government's supposed to do that for people. We forget that the body of Christ is supposed to meet each other's needs. And I'm talking about money and clothing and food and other things and we've kind of just like wiped that out of the way. Galatians 6.10 says, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. The actions reveal. First John 3, verse 17, whoever has this world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We know by this that we are of the truth. Professing believer, how do you know if you're in line with what God wants? Are you doing what the word says? It moves us right into the 10th responsibility, showing hospitality. And everyone gets this idea of having everyone over to their, to their messy house, you know. And they're like, I just can't have people over or whatever. My house isn't big enough. or My house is too messy or whatever. And, and they just lock it in there and go, well, that person over there is hospitable. The whole church is called to show hospitality. So I'm coming over to your house for lunch today. <laughs> no, seriously, what does it mean to sh- show hospitality? What does that really mean? It literally means pursuing the love of strangers, like loving strangers by pursuing them. Now in those days, hospitality was a needed thing. In in ancient days with no big hotels, they had small inns. They were often dirty and dangerous and immoral places. And Christians would need a place to stay as they travel away from home. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. And by the way, church leaders are supposed to set the pace. Titus 1.8 says, Elders are to be hospitable. And it says that you're to practice hospitality. You're to pursue it. Aggressively pursue it. Seek out opportunities to help other believers and other people. It literally means to chase down the chance to help. Not just when you asked. Not just when you hear of a need, but to anticipate a need and to premeditate helping with that need. First Peter 4:9 says, "Be hospitable to one another without complaint. you bless, not begrudge." When well, you go public with your help, you put your money where your mouth is, not to be seen, but to help meet needs. you do whatever it takes, whatever it is needed, and sacrifice in whatever way, you help those in need practically give to help believers in difficult times. You you look for ways to be kind to strangers and travelers. Back in those days, Zeus was known as the protector of strangers in Rome during Paul's life. But most of the advice back then about hospitality was how to get out of it. Cicero hurt his generation by telling them not to help people. He advised giving strangers only what cost nothing to give, Water, fire, and honest counsel. He said, well, since resources are limited and the number of needy is infinite, hospitality must be regulated by a principle. Only give what th- that does not diminish your resources. You know how many Christians think this way? I'm only going to give out of my excess. That's the mindset today. Paul discusses hospitality in light of what the Bible says about meeting the, the needy. It's Give. Much more gracious than Cicero's sad counsel. Cicero was inspired by human selfishness. Romans was inspired by the Holy Spirit. A surprising use of pursue here does not leave our hospitality to chance, but speaks of actively chasing down opportunities to help meet needs. And there's a play on words with verse 14 because it says in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. That word persecute is the same word for pursue in verse 13. oko, same word. So as people are chasing you down to persecute you, you're to be chasing other people down to help them. Samuel Bradburn was one of John Wesley's Methodist preachers, and he was a very poor man, and Wesley wrote him a note once, and he said this, Dear Sam, trust in the Lord and do good. So shall you dwell in the land, and you will be fed. Yours affectionately, John Wesley. And with the letter, he enclosed two five-pound notes, a huge sum of money in those days. And here is how Bradburn replied, Reverend and dear sir, I have often been struck with the beauty of the passage of scripture quoted in your good letter. But I must confess that I have never seen such a useful expository note in it before. We are, in the church of Jesus Christ, a community full of needs, eager to help the weakest. This is what it means to be a church that does good with genuine love, a church shaped by grace and harmony because of the gospel. And seriously, you do an awesome job of meeting the needs of the body, very quick to respond. When you're responding, treat them like a relative that you love. Helping is gonna cost you, and it's gonna require you to take action. When you became a believer, you didn't join a club that you were gonna pay dues for. You joined a family. You were brought into a family. You were adopted into a family that you would have responsibilities in. Your motives matter. The mindset is not who is going to meet my needs, but whose needs can I meet? Jesus generates love in his family. Jesus generates love in his church. Real Christianity, zealous family love, tenderhearted care, enthusiastic service, unwavering hope, generous need meeting. And by the way, you don't have to memorize all 10 of the responsibilities. Just love Jesus and do the next good thing. Seek to bless other people. Our self-focus is a recipe for disaster. It tears down fellowship. For years we've been hearing about the breakdown of the family. But what about the breakdown of the church? When family love ceases to be zealous, begins to erode, starts chipping away at the core, the church's worship and witness is weakened. If You wanna build a wall that won't erode and is able to withstand the forces of evil and of this world and of our sin, it will be quite simply supernatural. You have to look at the master builder. We're living stones. Jesus is the chief corner stone. And Jesus, Jesus is building his church. And Lord, thank you that we can come to you knowing that we are we're trusting you, the one who has saved us and sanctifying us, and sustaining us, and will glorify us one day, and will bring us safely to your heavenly kingdom in due time. But until that day, we wait for you, and we work in your name, trusting you, Lord Jesus, who unites what sin divides. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you generate family love in your church. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.